Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 18, The Thumb on the Scale, Constantius, the Homoian Triumph, and the Blasphemy of Sirmium. All right, we've finally been introduced to the next round of players in the 350s. We've met Constantius, that firm but mild-mannered occupant of the imperial throne. We have been introduced to every single one of the far too many theological schools in the period. We've watched the bishops send defamatory creed after defamatory creed at each other all throughout the 340s. Now, it is finally time for things to move forward in the story. And they will, because bishops and emperors alike are very ready for this controversy to be over. But they are going to move in precisely the opposite direction from how they would eventually end. Our task this episode is to understand why. The first step towards this illusory unity was yet another council in Antioch this time in 351 AD. It continued the long and distinguished tradition of bishops whining about each other. In this case, the bishops of Antioch protested yet again that Athanasius was being allowed to return to his see in Alexandria. He had been convicted of high crimes and misdemeanors at the Council of Tyre. Those convictions had never been overturned by anyone except the bishop of Rome, who had no jurisdiction and was not the boss of them so Athanasius should not have been allowed back. Why a bunch of bishops in Syria got to be the boss of Alexandria is, of course, a valid question, and one conveniently left unanswered by this council. Now, Constantius read the letter from this council and proceeded to do absolutely nothing with it. He was no fan of Athanasius, to be sure, but this is 351. You will remember that Constans got usurped and murdered by one of his generals the year before, so Constantius was busy putting down the usurper and doesn't really have troops to spare kicking Athanasius out of Alexandria right now. Especially because of how prone people are to rioting when Constantius tries to kick popular bishops out of their cities. But that did not mean he had no time at all for religious activity. After all, there was the winter when military campaigns went on pause. So Constantius called a council in the Roman city of Sirmium, which is at the very southern tip of modern-day Serbia. The council attempted to build some unity among the assembled bishops. They did this by repeating business that had already been settled four times before. Some church strategies really are eternal. So the bishops tried Photius, that modern-day modalist, for heresy. He had already been tried and convicted four times before, but you know what they say, fifth time's the charm, if the fifth time is the first time you have done the trial in front of an emperor who really just wants everybody to be normal for once. Photius was tried again, convicted again, and Constantius exiled him from the empire, presumably so that the bishops would stop wasting time reconvicting him over and over again. But Constantius was merely one tired administrator up against legions of bureaucratic bishops with an endless tolerance for tedium. So then they began with the next part of the agenda, which was coming up with their own creed, which they did by 
adopting the Fourth Creed of Antioch from 341. Again, the creed that everyone kept affirming and ignoring because it didn't really say anything substantive. How powerful. But the Council of Sirmium didn't just repeat old business. For to that Fourth Creed of Antioch, they appended 27 anathemas that had a little bit more bite. The anathemas can be divided into several different groups. Some of them just repeated the old materialistic assumptions about Nicaea that the Homoousians have been saying for 36 years they don't believe in, that nobody believes in, so can we please stop talking about this now? The second group relates to a number of biblical proof texts that heretical groups had appealed to. These anathemas took a particular form. They would say, if anyone interprets the text A to say B, let them be anathema. This is a really interesting move to make because it goes beyond just saying that people can't teach certain opinions in the church. It says that certain kinds of biblical readings are not allowed. In other words, the church is defining certain kinds of biblical readings as faithful and others as not faithful. Now, that doesn't mean that any random layperson who stumbled across one of these interpretations at the local Bible study was going to be excommunicated. But it does mean that churches are banning their clergy from setting certain interpretive patterns in front of their people. There's a way to teach the Bible that is orthodox, and there is a way of reading the Bible that is heretical. The third group of anathemas was directed at the modalist theologies of Photinus and, to a certain extent, Marcellus, who was still alive and kicking as a useful punching bag for Nicaea's opponents. And then there is the fourth group of anathemas, which appear to be directed straight at Athanasius. Here are anathemas 25 and 26. That the Father begot the Son without willing it. That the Son is ingenerate, again naton, and beginning so as to teach two beginnings and ingenerate principles and two gods. Both of these positions are anathema, and both are associated with Athanasius at least in the minds of his opponents. Athanasius' insistence that the Son is proper to the Father, that the Father is not himself without the Son, could be taken to imply that the begetting of the Son was automatic and unwilled by the Father. And of course, the fact that Athanasius so often compared the generation of the sun to natural and automatic processes, like light coming from a star, didn't exactly help. Now, as for the whole thing about the sun being ingenerate, I'm mostly going to skip it because it gets us so close to the agenaton-agenaton dispute that I am so aggressively disinterested in. But remember that Athanasius has a very strong insistence on the Son being ingenerate like the Father. So you can see what the Council is worried about here, that Athanasius has made the Son so much like the Father that the Son is now independent of the Father. Now, some scholars will tell you that this whole creed is pretty much directly opposed to the Council of Nicaea. It's not clear to me that that's warranted. This creed doesn't mention Nicaea at all. It definitely targets two prominent bishops who frequently appeal to Nicaea for support, but that's not the same as saying that Nicaea itself is bad. They might very well have said, we've got no problem with Nicaea, we're all for Nicaea, we're just tired of Athanasius and Marcellus misinterpreting Nicaea. 
But we do have one other sign that the winds were turning against Nicaea and towards some version of Arianism, or at least against Homoousianism. Valens and Ursatius, those perennially problematic bishops, seem to have withdrawn their recantations of Arian doctrines at this council. If they could do that and get away with it in the presence of the emperor, then new winds are blowing indeed. Those winds will blow even stronger in the years ahead. There are a few more councils over the next several years that were small and boring, so I'm not going to bother you with them. What is important is that during this time, Constantius appeared to be trying to strong-arm the bishops of the West, newly under his control, into signing some kind of doctrinal statement. We're not exactly sure what it was. It wasn't the Fourth Creed of Antioch, and we don't have the direct text of it available at all. What we do know, however, is that the statement had the support of most bishops in the eastern third of the empire and of Constantius. This meant that the statement of faith was probably in line with what the Homoian party would like, a general statement that the son and father are alike with no real discussion of substance. And if the bishops didn't agree, Constantius would exile them. This was the fate met by Hilary of Poitiers, who was one of Athanasius and Marcellus's most reliable allies. Constantius had learned from his father, the threat of exile was often a powerful motivator to get bishops to do what the emperor wanted. And while he was not a particularly bloodthirsty man, Constantius was not at all above using his powers to herd his querulous bishops toward a solution, his preferred solution. All of this came to a head in incredibly dramatic fashion at Milan in 355. Constantius, now reliably established as the emperor of the whole Roman Empire, had conquered Magnentius in the west and didn't have to be on the front lines with the Persians in the east. This meant he had more time to get directly involved in the affairs of the church. At this council, all the Roman clergy were gathered and presented with a simple task to sign a condemnation of Athanasius of Alexandria. That's right, Constantius was finally coming for the Bishop of Alexandria after that condemnation four years ago. And he was going to cut out Athanasius's entire base of support in Rome. This time, the difficult exile would not be able to come crying to the Bishop of Rome for help, or anyone in Rome for that matter, they would have signed a statement that Athanasius was persona non grata. And that is precisely what would have happened, if not for Lucifer of Calaris. Yes, that's right, that therapy-needing, vitriol-spewing opponent of Constantius may have been a terrible Christian, but he was a brilliant dramatist, and he was not about to let Constantius get his way without a fight. So Lucifer stood up and said, Sure, he would condemn Athanasius on one little condition. After all, there were heretics afoot, and the faith needed to be protected. So he presented a little copy of the Nicene Creed, and asked everyone to sign it. Once they were all on the same page about everybody being super-duper orthodox, then they could deal with the matter of Athanasius. This is why Robert's rules of order don't allow anybody but the chair to bring new business to the floor. It's an anti-chaos measure. But the Romans, existing 1,500 years before Robert's rules, did not have this anti-chaos measure. 
And so the bishops began to line up to sign the Nicene Creed, until Valens dived across the stage, presumably in slow motion, knocked the pen out of one of the signing bishops' hand, and yelled, You can't do that here! Things devolved from there, which is as good an opportunity as any to remind you that The Road to Nicaea is brought to you by the drama. Have you been bored lately? Feeling like life is missing that special pizzazz, that je ne sais quoi, that fills your days with color and light? What are you going to do about that? Take up art? Join your local theater troupe? Those things take a lot of time and effort. Instead, why not try making it everyone else's problem? For the drama. Your meetings won't run short. Neither will the stories they tell about them. The bishops eventually went from the church to the imperial palace to get Constantius's word on the matter. Constantius apparently said something to the effect of, Listen, I called you all here to condemn Athanasius, so condemn Athanasius. And if you don't want to, there's a nice friendly order of exile with your name on it right here just waiting for my signature. The bishops by and large relented. Athanasius was condemned by the majority, and the small minority that refused were exiled. Among those exiled was Lucifer of Calaris, who was unsurprisingly more interested in thumbing his nose at Constantius than anything else. There are a couple of important things to say here, but first I want to pause and note that this is where we see the height of imperial meddling in the church thus far. That's important to remember, especially because the popular myth is that Constantine was the great meddler in church affairs. The Christian writer Diana Butler Bass once tweeted that she burst into tears upon learning that Constantine personally inserted the word homoousius into the Nicene Creed. So she will no doubt be happy to learn that that account is entirely false. It is based only on Eusebius of Caesarea's account, and he was trying to rehabilitate his reputation. And even though Constantine exiled a few bishops, he was all too happy to readmit them after a few years' penance, whether they had changed their beliefs or not. Constantine didn't care about homoousius. Constantine just wanted the church to get along. And all that mattered was that one theology won out, no matter whose it was. So Constantius was much more interested in picking winners and losers, and exiled many more bishops with much less compunction and much greater consistency. And he did so almost exclusively in favor of those opposed to the party that eventually won. In other words, he almost exclusively exiled those bishops who tended to support the Nicene Creed. So whatever the reasons the creed eventually won out, it is not because it enjoyed more imperial favor than its rivals did. Its most successful interpreters are those who persisted in spite of imperial opposition. And speaking of that opposition, let's talk a little bit more about Constantius's pressure on two senior bishops in the West, Osius of Cordoba and Liberius. Let's start with Osius of Cordoba, since he'll go quicker. The reason is that Osius has actually been in our story since the very beginning, so he's going to get a whole supplemental episode next time. Boom. One bishop down, on to the next one. Liberius of Rome requires a little bit more explanation. He had succeeded Julius, that staunch ally of Athanasius, and it appears that Liberius started out in the same vein. Back in 353 or 354, 
so one to two years before this whole council, Constantius had been working on Liberius to get him to denounce Athanasius. Liberius wrote a response to the empire and sent it along with Lucifer of Calaris, which tells you pretty much everything you need to know about the letter's contents. We can summarize those contents as such. Dear Constantius, I'm so sorry I can't make you agree with me on Athanasius. Or about anything, for that matter. It's, it's just a real bummer. So, so yeah, about this whole Athanasius thing. I mean, it's not that I want to ignore the Council of Antioch. I mean, I actually published their decrees and everything. But then a friend told me that there was this council of 80 bishops in Egypt, and they totally vindicated Athanasius, man. So, like, they had more bishops at their council. Plus, they were local. So, doesn't seem right to ignore them, you know? And I'm so sorry that your bishops keep whining that I won't agree with them. But if they'd just stop being such dumb heretics and releasing all their dumb heretical doctrines and would just man up and condemn Arius like we keep asking, we'd be fine. But yeah, they just won't. Real bummer. Maybe you could, like, call a council and get him in line, man? So I've made up the contents of that letter, but it is basically the vibe. Constantius was not amused by this. While Liberius was not exiled at the Council of Milan, he would get exiled a few years later. To make a long story short, Constantius sent a messenger to Rome with a bunch of gifts for the Vatican. Liberius sent the messenger back, the gifts unopened and unacknowledged. This was a huge slap in the face to Constantius, who had his civil officers arrest Liberius on secret charges that we don't know even today. He was tried in front of Constantius and then exiled to Thrace. He would spend two years in exile before he broke. He then wrote a letter saying that actually he had ordered Athanasius to come to Rome and be tried by the Romans for his crimes, and Athanasius had said no. So really, Athanasius was the obstinate one, and Liberius is just going to go ahead and excommunicate him. Quite a change from the tone of his previous letter. That was good enough for Constantius, who readmitted Liberius to Rome. Liberius mostly kept his head down for the rest of the 350s. There was a brief riot when he returned, and the people of Rome kicked out the puppet bishop Constantius had installed in the interim. But otherwise, Liberius nodded and said, Yes, Emperor, whatever you say, Emperor, and just generally held his tongue. And Liberius was not the only bishop about to feel Constantius's wrath. Athanasius has been condemned for a while now, and has been able to ignore it while the emperor had bigger fish to fry. But after the Council of Milan, it became clear that Constantius was not going to let the status quo hold. That doesn't mean it was going to be easy. As you may remember, Athanasius was hugely popular with the locals in Alexandria. Part of this was his unique charisma. He was uniquely beloved by his people. And it didn't hurt that Athanasius was really tight with the Egyptian monks, who had their own kind of superstar charisma that a bunch of stuffy foreign bishops and prelates just couldn't compete with. So when Constantius sent a notary to Alexandria to kick Athanasius out, it did not go well. Notaries are not famous for being a forceful bunch, and this notary had only a handful of troops with him, he tried to attack Athanasius at the church where he was ministering, but Athanasius's parishioners delayed the troops long enough for him to escape. 
There, Athanasius moved to another part of the city, and he then began baptizing everyone. Yeah, I I'm not really sure what's going on there either. I don't know if this was a matter of Chut's paw, like he was saying, Hey, notary, come and get me. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. I've got more support than you do. Or maybe Athanasius was resigned to his fate and was just thinking, Okay, if I'm going to get exiled again, I'm at least going to make sure these baptisms get done right first. Or maybe he was trying to evoke some kind of notion of sanctuary. Kind of a, can't kick me out of church if the church service never ends type deal. Between this incident and his whole find the dude I was accused of murdering and bring him to the murder trial defense, love him or hate him, there's no denying Athanasius had style. In any case, the notary was not enough to force Athanasius out of the city. So then the governor showed up in January of 356. He had more than enough troops to force Athanasius out, and he fled the city. But if he had to leave, the Alexandrians were not leaving his memory behind. They occupied churches and resisted the imperial forces until June of that year, a whole six months later, when the old governor was replaced by a new one, who brought even more troops to Alexandria and kicked the local resistors out of their churches. These were dark days. The new troops, furious with the resistance they had encountered, began a reign of terror in which they could abuse the populace with impunity. The imperial grain gifts were transferred from the church to the anti-Athanasians in the city. In response to this, Alexandrians sympathetic to Athanasius attacked the new imperially appointed bishop while he was in church. He escaped and began working on a new general council that Constantius wanted to call to settle these doctrinal disputes once and for all. Now, where was Athanasius during all of this commotion? Not that far away, actually. He was hiding out with the monks in the Egyptian desert. When an emperor has sent a whole army to find you and capture you, it really helps to have a bunch of friends who live in desert caves and stuff. Also, to have friends with an impeccable reputation for holiness and miracle working, such that the average Roman soldier might be really nervous about roughing them up. It's unclear to me whether Constantius knew what was up and didn't care as long as Athanasius was out of Alexandria, or whether Athanasius's whereabouts were really and truly a mystery to him. Either way, everybody within a 15-mile radius was about to know where Athanasius was when they heard his scream of rage at the next council's proceedings. For in 357, just a year after his exile, a second small council was to be held at Sirmium. It produced a creed that the Homoousian party was to call the Blasphemy of Sirmium. I love the Blasphemy of Sirmium so much. Not as a concept, I'm not pro-blasphemy, but as a name. It's like the Holly Smoot Tariff of church history. It's the perfect name to mutter while theatrically shaking your fist at the sky. Does everything in U.S. history have to do with the Holly Smoot Tariff? No, of course not. But once you know that there was a policy called the Holly Smoot Tariff, you find yourself thinking of everything in terms of its relation, no matter how tenuous, to the Holly Smoot Tariff, just so you have more reasons to say the Holly Smoot Tariff. Just so with the blasphemy of Sirmium. 
It represents an inflection point in the whole controversy, to be sure, but it's also just so much fun to talk about the dramatic doings of the blasphemy of Sirmium. It was to shape everything that was to come after those bishops fatefully set down the blasphemy of Sirmium. So, what was the blasphemy? Well, it was the creed written at the Council of Sirmium in 357. Here it is, in one big blasphemous block, and I quote, Since there was thought to be no little difference concerning the faith, all the points were carefully considered and discussed at Sirmium. Our brothers and fellow bishops Valens, Ursatius, and Germanius were present. It is agreed that there is one Almighty God and Father, as is believed throughout the whole world, and His only Son, Jesus Christ the Lord, our Savior, born from Him before the ages. But there cannot be two gods, nor should they be preached, as the text runs. Therefore there is one God of all, as the Apostle taught, and the rest of the scriptures agree and can contain no ambiguity. But as for the fact that some, or many, are concerned about substance, which is called usia in Greek, that is to speak more explicitly homoousian, there should be no mention of it whatsoever, nor should anyone preach it. And this is the cause and reason that it is not included in the divine scriptures, and it is beyond man's knowledge nor can anyone declare the birth of the Son, and it is written on this subject. For it is clear that only the Father knows how he begot his Son, and the Son how he was begotten by the Father. There is no uncertainty about the Father being greater. It cannot be doubted by anyone that the Father is greater in honor, in dignity, in glory, in majesty, in the very name of Father, for he himself witnesses. And nobody is unaware that this is Catholic doctrine, that there are two persons of the Father and the Son, and that the Father is greater, and the Son is subjected in common with all the things which the Father subjected to him. That the Father has no beginning, is invisible, immortal, and impassable, but that the Son is born from the Father, God from God, light from light, whose generation as Son, as has been said already, no one knows except the Father and that the Son of God himself our Lord and God, as it is said, assumed flesh or body, that is, man, from the womb of the Virgin Mary, as the angel foretold. As all the scriptures teach, and especially the teacher of the Gentiles himself, the apostle, he took human nature from the Virgin Mary, and it was through this that he suffered. But that is the summary of the whole faith and the confirmation of it, that the Trinity should always be preserved as we read in the Gospel. And the Comforter of the Spirit is through the Son, who was sent and came according to the promise, so that he might support, teach, and sanctify the apostles and all believers. End quote. This is as clear of a statement of the Homoian position as you are ever going to get. Translation. Just shut up about the whole homoousius thing. We're not talking about it. We're never talking about it. And if you try to talk about it, you're a heretic. Now, some of you may be wondering just where exactly the blasphemy is in all of this. I mean, it's forceful and all, but there's no invective directed against God. What counts as blasphemy in the blasphemy of Sirmium? Well, the answer is that the Homoousians felt that the Council of Sirmium denigrated the Son by all but denying his substantial equality with the Father. 
This goes back to what we said in episode 6. The goal of the church is to praise God. And when people hold out on saying something God has revealed about himself, like that the fact that the word is homoousius with the Father, and instead go on and on about how the word is inferior to the Father, well, that's pretty insulting. Blasphemous, even. There's also another political reason why Sirmium was such a rallying cry for the Homoousians. It was the first time in the controversy that a council had directly countermanded Nicaea's creed. Sure, other creeds had clearly been somewhat critical of Nicaea, but they expressed that through silence and through wording things differently. The blasphemy of Sirmium came out and said that Nicaea's Homoousian was a stupid term, probably written by stupid people, and they all needed to shut their stupid mouths and not say more stupid things. So they were not just blaspheming God, they were disregarding the wisdom of the bishops who had met just one generation before them. And this included bishops of all schools. The UCBI had signed the creed just as much as Alexander and Marcellus. The idea of Nicaea as a decisive council, one to whom allegiance would be a defining feature of the true church, takes shape here, precisely in the wreckage of its great defeat at Sirmium. The Homoousian party that we talked about last episode largely emerged out of the outrage surrounding Sirmium. They were a compromise party designed to reconcile the mainstream bishops with the Homoians who had won the day at Sirmium, and Constantius was more than willing to help this process along. He reasoned that if he could broker a compromise between the Homoians and the Homoiousians, maybe he could finally resolve this issue. Sure, I mean, he'd still lose the radical Anomians like Aetius and Eunomius, but that was a small price to pay. And Athanasius and the more recalcitrant Homoousians, well, they weren't going to be coming around anytime soon. But given that Constantius had just chased their senior spokesperson into exile in a desert, they probably weren't going to play ball no matter what he proposed. So Constantius began trying to call a great council to get all of the bishops to sign on to this. He was not going to take any chances. So, he called a pre-council in 359 to draft a creed that everyone could agree to. This creed is called the Dated Creed, because it was the only creed that actually included its date in the title. Now, I'm not going to read the Dated Creed, because it is very similar to the Blasphemy of Sirmium, just know that it was much more moderate in its eschewal of Usia language. The bishops thought that this would be acceptable to most parties. And so Constantius said, great, and called two councils, one in the east and one in the west, to ratify the dated creed. Neither went according to plan. The Council of Seleucia, in modern-day south-central Turkey, was riven with controversy from the start. It was actually supposed to be held in Nicomedia, but a massive earthquake had recently hit the region, destroying multiple churches and even killing a few bishops. Those are not the kinds of acts of God that church meetings usually like to start off with, so they moved to the town of Seleucia. But there, an earthquake would be the least of their problems. Some bishops wanted to propose a new creed instead of the dated creed they were all there to sign. Some got into fights over who could be seated at the council while trials against them were ongoing, and all of them fought over the turbulent Usia question. 
Eventually, the council dissolved itself without coming to any conclusions. Two quarreling sets of deputies, each representing one of the factions of the council, were sent to the emperor, who must have been wondering if there was any force on earth that could get these bishops to just be normal. He would soon have a chance to try. The Council of Arminium in the West was still going on. There were about 400 bishops in total, at least 80 of which were firmly in favor of the dated creed. Foremost among those 80 were that Episcopal celebrity power couple Valens and Ursatius. They knew the wind was blowing in Constantius's favor, and they were ready to ride his coattails as far as he would take them. But, as you will no doubt know, 80 is way less than 400, so the dated creed didn't win the day, at least at first, because the minority actually refused to agree that the majority had carried the day. Both groups commissioned sets of delegates to go tell Emperor Constantius that their side had won, thank you very much, pay no attention to the other delegates in the room. Constantius was not happy. He had called two councils to try to get one unanimous decision. Now he had four quarreling parties at his doorstep. It was time for him to put his finger on the scale even more decisively. So after receiving the pro-Nicene delegation, in other words, those who wouldn't sign the dated creed, Constantius moved them to a small town called Nikkei. What was significant about Nikkei? Well, clearly, Constantius was beginning a corporate brand sponsorship with a sneaker company that... No, I'm just kidding. The truth is even dumber. Apparently, the main draw was that the town's name sounded like Nicaea. I am not making this up. Apparently, Constantius's master plan was something like this. Once the pro-Nicene delegation got to Nikkei, he then sent Valens, for the first and only time in his life, without his BFF Ursatius. Valens went back to the main council, still at Ariminum, to persuade them to just sign the ding-dang creed like the emperor wanted. While Valens was off doing that, Constantius cornered the delegation at Nikkei and got them to sign. Because of their location, they could bill this as a new Nicene Creed. Right, guys? You're still pro-Nicene? This bait-and-switch would not have passed muster with literally anybody. But Constantius was also making it very clear that those who wouldn't sign were likely to get exiled. And slowly, that threat of exile got everyone on board. First the Nikkei delegation, then the council at Ariminum, and then finally the council at Seleucia. You might think this was a happy ending for everyone. Constantius finally got all of the quarreling bishops to shut up, and the Homoians and Homoiousians had finally come to their long-awaited rapprochement. Except they really hadn't. I told you that these councils got called to pass the dated creed, and that is what they were supposed to do. But by this point in the podcast, it will probably not surprise you to learn that they did something a little bit different. They wanted to put a few of their own touches, and so they passed a creed that's very much like the dated creed, but differs in some key respects. Most crucially, the dated creed described the son as like the father in all respects. It didn't specifically mention substance or usia, 
But if the son is like the father in all respects, well, that had to include Usia, didn't it? And the Homoi Usians were satisfied with that, as were the Homoians. Even if you don't outright use the word Usia, that kind of language lets those who want to use it feel like they've been heard. But then the final creed left that out. It just said that you couldn't use the word Usia and made no comment about the son being like the father in all respects. And so the Homoiousians were suddenly not satisfied. Just when they seemed to have triumphed, the Homoiousian party was eclipsed by the Homoians. And thus the Homoian solution of just not talking about the tricky issue of substance seemed poised to carry the day. With Constantius's firm hand ready to exile anybody who wasn't on board, even the firmest exponents of Nicaea could do little to change the tides of theology. But just as the dust was settling, everything changed. Because Constantius fell gravely ill, and the next man set to inherit the empire was Julian, the youngest of his male relatives, the sole survivor of Constantius's family purges, and someone with a few axes to grind against the Christian church. Get ready, dear listeners, for a full U-turn along the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.